0: Welcome to Bestek, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are talking about food procurement and tracking research progress. Welcome to Bestek,
1: the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Besteck. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hola, Marta. Hello,
0: hello. So there we are again talking about food today how what how an excellent opportunity i mean i already tried to make the link in the in the previous episode about uh, the didum case that dutch case that we discussed that it was about supermarkets and you buy food in supermarkets and we're trying to make this about you know a bit of a love of food and conferences after so but today you totally nailed the topic you suggested food procurement and i was like yes steak cutlery food perfect it just
1: fits like a glove right
0: I mean we can stop here I mean yeah, the, the we're done. just <laughs> we're done for the day uh, uh, let's let's crack open a bottle of wine and just you know start the evening even though it's 3.30 here at the moment but anyways we'll we won't anyhow, do that let's we won't. let's go for food procurement and um, that's our main for today um uh, it's also part of a bigger research project that you're involved in and I'm sure you'll tell us a bit more about that later on. We'll be looking at food, food systems, why it's important to talk about food um, and the issues of sustainable food procurement particularly um, because the aspects of localism play a, a strong role in that. So that's a bit of a teaser for for our main and for our dessert. Um, we're looking at one of the suggestions that we got from, um, from uh, Twitter, I think. This one was from Twitter, I think. Yes, Am I, saying I that think correctly? so. Um, and, um, it's about tracking your research progress. And the question that was raised really was, um, okay, I'm working on something. How do I know, I suppose, or oh, that's how I interpret it. How do I know if I'm on track or, uh, and perhaps the, the follow-up question, how do I make sure that I'm happy with that progress? Um, but that's perhaps my follow-up, but yeah. let's go for main first, um, Sometimes I think we should be a bit cheeky and we'll start with the des- with dessert, but that's maybe for another episode. Um, let's go for the savoury first. Uh, food, procurement. Um, food procurement. Perhaps you, can, you could start off by telling us a bit more about the research project that you're involved in right now.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the reasons um, how I got into looking into food procurement is thanks to this really interesting project that I'm part of. Um, it's a multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary at the same time project called Cocoreato and is focusing on connecting consumers and producers to rebalance farmers position really. It's really interesting. A variety of different disciplines to be honest, I'm the only lawyer in the, in this sort of team. Which uh, always puts scary. Us, it is scary because you always perceived as the no person. It's not fun, you know, because you no. always say, "Oh, great," but no. So this is a little <laughs> bit. This is a little bit tricky position to be in. But I think at the same time it's kind of important to have a legal perspective because, um, to be honest, in regards to um, research in area of uh, sustainable food procurement, there is a fair bit of research from different disciplines. And a lot of the suggestions and recommendations that they touching upon procurement, uh, to be very honest, it's not very practical because under existing rules, you cannot just do that. So, of course, then you could argue for a very normative approach to research where you would change law. But I think that where the value much more lies in is trying to focus on suggesting solutions and practical approaches to really operate within the framework that we have. So within Cocoriato, there is a variety of different work packages. One of those work packages is specifically on... Uh, sustainable food procurement. What are the good practices? What are the legal constraints? What you can do and how you can do it, and that's a little bit when when I come um, into into place with my research, and I have fantastic collaborators, particularly two people that I've been working extensively on it. Um, it's my colleague uh, Lena, who is also with me on project, from um, from. Uh, Copenhagen here, and also Bettina, who is a procurer for the municipality of Copenhagen, someone who has very extensive uh, experience. So some of the examples that I'll be using during today, uh, I cannot take credit of them. Those wonderful ladies have been using them in practice and been so kind of sharing them with me. Uh, and And they bring a lot of interesting food for thought. So this is a sort of one angle. And another angle which I think that I would want us to start with today is really kind of talk a little bit about. Um, problems with food system broadly that we have because we all have opinion about food, right? And we all have very close connections to food and, and, and uh, strong opinions about food. And, and and food, I think, is such a fantastic thing to talk about procurement because if we talk about, you know, construction technologies, IT or some other things, it can feel very withdrawn from our day to day and procurement can become very technical. But when we started to talk about food, I think everyone can kind of relate and logic, a lot of logic lying behind food is something that we can all relate to. So, yeah. when it so, co- so basically,
0: yeah. infrastructural projects don't end up in your mouth. They don't have flavor. It's hard to imagine it, whereas food systems, at least the food that ends up coming out of the system is very uh, relatable. Perhaps I can make it a, a, a bit sharp and I say, uh, maybe I'll flip it because you wanted to talk about problems, but what would be the price of an unsustainable food system? And maybe that you can kick off with that.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think that... The, the, the main problem with the food system and also procurement of food is that this is one of the sectors that has the highest indirect cost that we cannot really account for um, in a very straightforward manner. So what is the price of a sustainable food? Well, if we look at it from environmental and climate perspective. Perspective and the consequences. We're dealing with things like drought. We're dealing with things like heavy rain, forest fires, floods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a very, very close connection between monocultures and between um, how the sort of um, industrialized agriculture and food production affects, for example, environment and, and climate change, um, but also the loss of, of biodiversity. There is way too much of of, of this monoculture, what we would describe as monoculture in in our Western diets. And that ultimately leads to uh, problems with health, such as diabetes and overweight. And those are all this type of indirect cost because the cost of malnutrition, a cost of um, the the, the health consequences of us feeding our societies in in a very poor way, are the costs that ultimately again government at some point picks up, right? If we're talking about European countries where you have kind of access to healthcare in 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 in, in a public public uh, sector way. Uh, because if if you have those problems, um you 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 will need to deal with it with a with the doctors' hospitals and et cetera. And then also there is a question of, or, or the cost of not evenly distributed food. So this in, inequality in, a, in a health and 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 life expectancy, and how this is con- very closely connected with um, inequality. So you know, if you have a school that buys the cheapest possible food, and this is the type of food that you know you would not want your child to ultimately put to their mouth. If you are if you are of a you know mid higher societal class, you would just pack food for your kids and they would have the good food for lunch at school. Um, for those who are coming from vulnerable economic um, circumstances, there are disadvantaged, and that might be the only meal that particular kid has access to is the sort of you know public voucher school meal. That's the only meal that they're getting per day. and the nutritional value of that is zero. Because actually what is really also disheartening that when you're starting to really look into food procurement, uh, when you're really realizing how this very economic cost efficient approach that we have in public procurement, what that means to the type of food that you get and what you're buying. And then when you're realizing what you're buying is, you know, I was, I was absolutely shocked. I was absolutely shocked to see what type of things are being bought. So this is really, you know, the the cost of the unsustainable uh, food system. And of course, here, um, what's the role the public procurement plays? Well, we have this this uh, theme that continuously comes during our episodes in this podcast, which is that governments and public institutions have this purchasing power and can affect. Uh, and, and sort of nudge and incentivize in particular direction the market through how they design their procurement and what they ask for. And this sort of relationship on the one hand side between the negative costs uh, of the current food systems and the instrumentalization of public procurement has been acknowledged broadly broadly. I would say globally by different stakeholders, so of course, one of them uh, one of the sort of strategies that very clearly um, showcases is the European green deal uh with, within which we have the farm uh, to fork strategy to discuss the notions of of food um potentially introducing mandatory minimum requirements in context of uh sustainable food. Uh, yeah, that's but, what the
0: the European Parliament called on, right? So Exactly. Um, I think it was December last year where there was a call from Parliament saying the end of last year, if I get the month wrong, um, saying that there would be a need to do so, right? So to introduce those, particularly the focus was on schools, um, whereas in the Netherlands that's less relevant. I think that's also culturally depicted if schools provide food or lunch. Um, but catering services might also be affected by that. So I think that will be a call to action to listen to some of our previous uh, episodes eight and three, perhaps to listen a bit more about the move towards mandatory uh, criteria. But you were talking about the, the growing recognition of... and Yes, yeah, so,
1: so this is this, what you what you highlighted. This is one of the aspects, right? And of course, what we also need to acknowledge just as a sideline note to this, that food is also particularly regulated. So in certain jurisdictions, also sort of particular type of food procurement, such as for schools or hospitals, they are kind of excluded from the application of some of the procurement rules because they have a particular regulation. So that's also something to have in mind. Um, and then on a global scale because this is obviously a very global problem this is not just european prog- problem um, but on a global scale the upcoming um, unep global review 2022 of sustainable public procurement up there actually very clearly showcase that over the last years the importance of food, focus on food within procurements, developing criteria within food, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, really jumped quite high in a priority of organizations. So I think that this all leads us to really um, conclude or really acknowledge the importance of this particular sector. Uh, for for uh, our today day to day sort of strategies regarding procurement and where the focus really will lie to a certain extent.
0: So we're talking about food systems and unsustainable food systems. I suppose public procurement has a role to play, an important one, like you say. It's that's also being. Its recognition is growing, right, when you look at all these international agreements or the, uh, the, the, the food procurement criteria on the EU level, like you mentioned, the farm-to-fork strategy, Green Deal. Um, perhaps we're slowly moving towards some more legal discussions as well, but perhaps you could now highlight why sustainable food procurement is such a delicate subject as well.
1: Yeah, because I think that this is really, this is a very good question because it ultimately frames our legal discussion here and why there are legal problems and why there is, I think, a certain need to really lift um, the level of awareness of how you can do sustainable public procurement of food. And the sort of delicate or controversial or sort of point of tension when it comes to discussion of sustainable food procurement is twofold. First of all, is a term local. Because if, 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 if I would just ask Ooh, the you the daunting to, word in yes. any,
0: like instantly, when, when I talk to my students about public procurement, I say, if you ever see a mentioning of a member state
1: or like something Voldemort. local...
0: It's like, Don't say uh, it. D- exactly. He, he, he or she who must not be named exactly. local. That's It's, it's exactly. a done deal. Yeah, instantly red flags. But yeah, keep going.
1: Yeah, so, so, you know, we sort of, as procurement experts, we know, right? This is the first thing that you're like, ooh, nope, nope, absolutely not. But if I would ask you to just quickly Google, you know, sustainable food procurement or food procurement or anything, I would make a very bold claim that, you know, nine out of ten, ten guidelines as recommendations that you come across is uh, first buy local. And now this is, of course, again, a bit specificity to our European market. But I dare to say that this applies more broadly because I don't think that in our terms of European procurement rules this is not allowed, it's prohibited. But even if you look in other circumstances so even if we would talk about you know under the threshold procurements, small procurements that you could have an option of asking for local, I don't think that asking for local is anyhow leading you to sustainability. Because something can be local, but it's not sustainable. And I know that we we had at some point actually, Willem, this conversation. I don't know if you remember, but we talked a little bit about food and you sort of laughed that yeah, if you can kinda of pick up your own carrot that you can have from, you know, your garden, then that's obviously will be most presumably the the healthiest. Or this is very intuitively something that we that we um Conclude, right? But there is this brilliant example, and this is a little bit of a example to our conversation, but also a sideline of experiences when you kind of think that you're saying something smart, but not really. But there is
0: this. Um, <laughs> I wonder if this is in reference to something I've once said. No, no, going. this is something that I actually said. You say,
1: don't worry. Uh, so, so there is Thanks. this classic example of showing sustainable food on an example of tomato, right? And the example is goes that you sort of say, well. Um, if you're going to grow a tomato in green uh, greenhouses somewhere in let's say Denmark or even Norway somewhere north, really yeah, in the north, Netherlands,
0: we are big on greenhouses right. Yeah.
1: The amount of energy and resources that you will need to really produce it, it will be really unsustainable. It's not really good for for broadly understood environment. Uh, It is much better and is much more sustainable if you consider that actually it's a a tomato that has been grown, you know, sort of under natural sunlight of, you know, southern Italy. And then it's delivered to you uh, through, you know, let's say uh, rail um, uh, or or, or even, you know, trucks, anything else than planes. Right. And this is the sort of very traditional example to showcase that local not necessarily means sustainable. And then I had a workshop on this on this Colorado project with one of my colleagues that really works on sort of uh, tracking the life cycle and building the life cycle, the 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 really sort of actually kind of science of of creating the patterns of what something is sustainable or not. And he sort of highlighted to me that this is actually used as a very traditional example, but it's not necessarily true. Because some of those green uh, houses, if they have really, you know, like a circular loop of refreshing the water and filtering the water and the energy comes from uh, renewable energy and it's really like a closed loop, that that solution actually might be... Much more sustainable than what we traditionally say about this, you know, very natural produ- production. Let's say of tomato on of South Italy, because also this this will be a form of quite industrial production already. So there will be some sort of forms of energy used on them too. So this is just to showcase that this is, you know, not very obvious topic. Uh, in the, no, in we that, we need to regards. be
0: sharp when it comes to coining something as sustainable, and just assuming that local equals sustainability it can go a lot of ways but we need to be sharp on that that's is that what you're absolutely
1: and also additionally you need to in a quite specific uh terms even before you go into procurement define what sustainability is because it needs to be somehow measurable quantifiable you need to you, you need to be able to operate within this quite formalized structures that we have right so this sort of idea of you know tomato in southern italy under sun is it's it's sort of you know, it
0: sounds appealing, though, still, but yeah, yeah,
1: but it's not really something that ultimately, on the example that I gave, can lead you to exactly. quite wrong assumptions, right? And the second layer to that, before be be be, uh, be um, sort of going away from this, but also why this is a bit controversial or hot topic or point of tension very very briefly is also that very often we also entering a space of discussing as social aspects of procurement and that is role of farmers and the notion that you know we should encourage we should promote participation of farmers within our public procurements etc etc and of course here the the point of 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 knowledge that we have to share as procurement specialist to policy developers or, or, or activists within this field uh, or, or market broadly is this notion that we need to distinguish between the fact that procurement ultimately focus on what the offer is, not from who the offer comes, right? And there are certain limitations uh, that, are, that are given here.
0: So when you say involve the farmer, I could see a couple of ways where you could involve them. Um, is is it involving them by procuring directly from the farmer or does it mean um, having them be a part of setting up a procedure and having them test the criteria or or, or are those separate different things than what you mentioned because you kind of focused on perhaps them being a sustainable farmer, and that's something that we don't necessarily focus on in in traditional public procurement procedures in Europe.
1: Well, I think that the notion of that is very much of trying, similarly as you trying to kind of lobby for local procurement, that you would say, oh, you just should buy directly from the the farmer. Mm -hmm. And I think that this touches upon about two or three relevant issues for us to consider. First of all, we cannot promote within public procurement Position of a farmer just sort of for the fact that he's a farmer, right? Because that would be discriminatory. So we cannot do that. What we can do, and we can draw in 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 sort of parallel this comparison, or or, or sort of replace the notion of farmer with small medium enterprises, and that will be equally applicable, right? So we cannot give them a competitive points for them being the type of organization that they are. But what we can do is design our procurements in such a way yeah. that it will be easier for them to partake in that tender, yeah. which ultimately will lead, hopefully, to broader competition, right? So so this is sort of what I mean, um, that you cannot really give them competitive advantage by the fact that they are local, small. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. It's, it, uh, that kind of touches upon also what we discussed in uh, for access to um, public procurement for social enterprises and citizens initiatives. I think a lot of the
1: <coughs> discussions that-, that
0: we touched, there's a lot of parallels there. Okay. Yeah. The-
1: The question that is here that I would want to pick up your brain is though, can we say, so it's not the fact that someone is a small producer, but can we say that we buy only from like directly from the producer? So can we require, can our design focus on, you know, length of the supply chain? So, what you rather say is like, I'm not saying that I want local. I just say that I want to buy directly from the producer. I want to skip through the middle, you know, three chains. And I don't care if the direct producer is in Spain, you know, Italy, France, whatever, or it's three kilometers from my municipality. I want to buy directly from them. Because the notion of why I want to buy directly from them is the notion that that provides me with the most transparency, Because the information that I can obtain about, you know, how something is produced, what type of conditions uh, are there in context of, I don't know, health and safety for employees, etc. this is a question of transparency. It's not a question of, you know, a sort of type of preferential treatment. And I'm not limiting to say only my, you know, local farmers. I'm just sort of asking for particular structure of a supply chain.
0: I think it would be difficult. Right to, to do that
1: because here you ultimately again kind of run against the same issue which is you then sort of discriminate against a longer supply chain but I think that this makes absolute sense to sort of challenge or certain level this type of logic though
0: yeah I, 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 let's actually because I think we'll be talking about freshness of produce as well which and, and I think that kind of you know could link with this one quite nicely this question <laughs>
1: Sure. So we can actually go to it. So then, if we to sum up this point that I was trying to make is, you know, why food procurement? What are some of the main caveats in there? What, what are some points of tensions? One of them is that localism plays such a big role and in, in, in understanding of what is you know most sustainable food. And two is the role of um, farmers in them, right? They sort of so the social policy uh, driver. So then. If we if we acknowledge that, then the question is: Okay, if we cannot use local in the design of our procurements, what are some of the methods that we could design procurements? What are some of the consideration criteria that we could describe in designing a sustainable food procurement? And this so this is, is the, the um,
0: this is the, the the yes and lawyer speaking, not the no lawyer that.
1: Exactly. So I, I showed yep. you what the problem is, and now I will try to give you some sort of solution options, or at least consideration that could be All helpful. Right. Hit us up. Yeah. So one of the first one that you already touched upon is this notion. Okay. Can so 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 there are a couple options. One is can I ask that I buy directly from small scale suppliers or from short supply chains? And this is what Willem sort of uh, pointed out to, and, and, and I agree that there is a certain issue here because then you may run into challenge of saying that you're discriminating against a bigger big suppliers or larger companies. And this yeah, that, argument... Yeah, right? and,
0: and I think if the supply chain is short, isn't that just indirect discrimination? Because if a supply chain is short, you might not end or leave the boundaries of your country, right? For smaller member states, it might be harder to argue. But, yeah, yeah, but
1: you know, so this is one of those examples because the the part also of you know this small small scale, large scale, the part of it that I'm sort of feeling very um, that I would want to challenge this this way of thinking is, um, you know, but but you're not saying I want my from my farmer or from danish farmer or from dutch farmer i'm saying i just want to buy directly from a producer and that producer can be somewhere else and you know that in itself is objective criteria right then we and i think what we come very often in this discussion that we're having here is this notion of indirect discrimination and how how you know how applicable that is and i think that as a consequence of the global issues that we currently have is that is you know long supply chains and all the issues that are attached to long supply chains this is right now a counter argument of trying to investigate to what extent you can provide a certain due diligence through your supply chain right and certain transparency of your supply chain and one of the ways could be potentially buying you know directly from the producer right yeah. because that and that allows you to really um, ensure a certain due diligence along the supply chain, right? But then some others that that, that are potentially um, to be considered. Um, requirement for you to make fresh food. So for you to actually uh, buy fresh or meals made from scratch. So this is particularly applicable because one of the aspects that uh, you also need to consider when you do um, sustainable food procurement, whether you buy it as supplies, so you buy apples, meat, milk, et cetera, et cetera, or whether you're buying um, canteen services, right? Because yeah. then you kind of have two-step two process when you're buying f- services from canteen. And canteen, the private supplier then conducts their own tenders, private tenders, that um, then uh, that then uh, buys supplies. So I think,
0: for convenience' sake, often yeah. it would be, or at least if I look at Dutch practice, it's often seen as a service. Mm.
1: Because it's depending also, how you structure whether you have public canteens or not.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, mm. of course, yeah. So if I look at it, uh, of the delicious food they serve at the university, there was a little bit of sarcasm there, but. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I don't think the university would be interested or have the capacity to buy directly from farmers because it would require them to set up their own service again, right? Which yeah. is something they didn't want anymore. They wanted to contract it out. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So this is for sure also the capacity question. But then interesting question here already is another one is, you know, if you're buying a services, then you're buying services, but then in a contract performance clauses... When you're saying, okay, when you, my provider of services, are conducting procurement for supplies, can I then require them in contract performance clauses to buy local, to buy directly from a farm, yeah. etc., cetera, et cetera? Because that technically is not any more, you know, sort of public procurement. That's then private procurement, but it's written in public contract, right? So, this is yeah, also something sure. that the the questions are being raised right now, right? on the on the market it's like where we can and how we can do it, right? Um And I'm a bit skeptical I, because I think that if you write it in a public contract, I'm not sure. On the other hand side, it is already, you know, tendered, right? But,
0: yeah, so that would diminish the issue, But I still think there's there's this discussion of if we're looking for short, if you're asking for short supply change or from local producers, I think, or at least some lawyers would argue then, look, that will cause indirect discrimination, that you're actually just asking for local Dutch producers or Danish producers. Just in a different way. Just, you're just making it, you're, you're actually circumventing any type of obligation you might have under the free movement rules or public procurement rules, right? Um, but perhaps, you know, and then this is one of the things that you also mentioned before is would certification then make it easier in this, in this regard.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the aspects that you could go about it and, and, and practice has been done and it's quite successful is use or require organic, right? Use a require of of organic food and for that, then you can use different labels, right? And of course, here, what is important is to also um, distinguish between the type of labels that you can use for technical specification and which you cannot and you can use them only for award or uh, contract performance clauses, because here you will have example of fair trade and the Dutch coffee case, right? Yep. we going to we going to Willem's jurisdiction when when the court clearly said that fair trade is is absolutely allowed but not as a technical specification because it does not fulfill what technical specification is you can consider as contract performance clause so organic is one of the options but it's it's the the problem with labels of course they are at times expensive and maybe not achievable so we need to investigate other ones and um I know that there is a lot to be covered within that subject and I need to stop uh, at some point. So I want to just jump on to two that I know that yeah. uh, in Denmark have been exercised um, quite extensively and they're very interesting, but they bring the same questions about, you know, short supply chain, which is this, isn't that a sort of circumventing the rules just in other different ways. And first of them is to ask for seasonal food. And, you know, the way how this can be clearly showcased that is a bit problematic is if you're going to uh, ask for uh, buying things uh, when they are in season in the country that you're buying. So if I'm saying I want things that are in season specifically in Denmark in July, because that might be that you're asking your own market. But if I'm requiring in my in my technical specification, in my tender that food is seasonal, and what I mean by that is that the food is harvested when it is in the season in the place that it is harvested in. So the example here is that you know that there are some apparently apples that are you know collected and then they are in like fridges for up to two years, and then when you're actually buying those apples, that they long time ago been been fresh uh, so this is seasonal and the second uh, consideration is diversity when you just sort of saying asking within your documentation that you want the broadest diversity of let's say apples because apparently there's up to you know 98 different types of apples and you give additional points for that diversity and why I think that those are really brilliant always that we're discussing within this episode of, you know, trying to exercise it, where my researcher head spins slightly. And, and I'm extremely scared of even asking about that our dear colleague Albert, because I feel that he will say, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. Is this aspect that if you design it in a way that ultimately it, you know, indirectly creates a map of a, of a border of your country, and I think that that's problematic. In other words, if I'm saying I want to buy in, you know, July strawberries, and those strawberries are to be of particular type of strawberries that is predominantly a type that is, you know, present, let's say, on Danish market, and um, it is uh, to be harvested, you know, within a week time of of it being fresh and season and delivered. Then I think that when you sort of map it, or also if you specifically point out particular type of apples that are in season in particular months, I think that this is very much indirectly, objectively, but indirectly discriminatory because you're creating borders of your market. And I was yeah. just wondering what you think.
0: Yeah, so I think that, I mean, that touches upon what we just discussed about indirect discrimination. And I think your angle of, um, of narrowing competition, right, we, we, we addressed... Article 18 in the directive and the principle of competition briefly before in some episodes. And I think that's definitely also an issue that could come more from the remit of core public procurement law, right? Are we, because also what's, what's giving, right? If we focus on that and we limit our supplies so much, you know, the cost would go up, right? There's something to consider, P- perhaps it's, it's irrelevant because we just want to have sustainable food systems that can be a policy choice. Um, but that's definitely something to consider. I think for future days, uh, days to come.
1: Yeah, and I think to wrapped up this 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 part, I think that what I would say it's this is a very clear, a very clear example where the tension I think for the next ten years would be, which is this is those are objective consideration. You want fresh, you want diverse, you want seasonal for nutritional value for all these different things that are objective. And then the question is, if that objective is following from your objective also to, to buy sustainable food, how this is counterweight by open competition? Because those are, at some point, they will be going head to head. And then the fact that you consulted the market and you sort of consulted behind, you know, the, the close three neighboring countries, etc., is that enough? To what extent you know discovering a true nature of your reasoning whether it is protectional practice or whether it is truly sustainable really matters because i think that you you cannot really get there and if it's that we want to have more better food on 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 plates more nutritional food to what extent we can sort of push that agenda now i'm not sure whether i really provided help or actually raised five million other questions but i think that those are very practical issues that currently are on the market and and it's very fascinating uh, project that i'm hoping to dive a little bit more into
0: well i think you're selling yourself short i think these is that it, it, it's it's been great hearing the project that you're involved in the the cocoreado project if i pronounce that correctly and of course, also part of our work and what we do in this podcast is to raise the question to, ins- to, to, to get the debate going. And I think there's some really valid questions and also some pathways to answering them already provided. Um, so, but let's see where this takes us. And I look forward to, to the research results of the project. We still have a, a little bit of time left for the, um, for the dessert. And a big shout out to, to Esgi, uh, one of the PhD candidates on public procurement in the Sapiens project asked um, us when we called out geez what do we need to talk about for dessert um, uh, about tracking research project progress and that's how I've, I've phrased it um perhaps I can give you the floor and, and kick off with that uh, how do you track your research progress
1: yeah I think that this is uh, this is quite difficult and I also uh, fully understand why some of our PhD candidates, maybe not struggle, but why they identify that it's something that they would want to get a bit of help with. Because PhD project is also quite specific, right? You're working for three, four, five years, depending where you are, towards one goal. And the question is, did I did anything this week or I did not? It's very not tangible. So um, my advice is to sort of build um, in steps. And, And my first advice would be how you measure that is, to do two things. First of all, create for yourself a word or pages sort of goal. So if that is writing, you know, 500 words per day, or if that is writing X amount thousands of words per week, or three pages, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it can be a good starting point. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that you really what you wrote is something that's going to end up. In the end, in your article, book, chapter, thesis, etc. But it fits several purposes. First of all, something that I have to say always to the PhD students, uh, you can improve on something that is already written, but you cannot improve just about having something in your head because there is also part about how there is a translation and sort of transferring what is in your head to the paper that sometimes takes a little bit of time to figure out. There are particular structures within work uh, in, in in legal academia requires language, structure, et cetera. So you can always improve. So collecting some pages and then giving it for feedback, you, you can improve on that way, and that's your progress. And second thing is also developing skills, and that is writing fairly fast, something that for way too many of us takes way too much time and took too many years to really create that as a skill. So I think that this is the first thing. And a second thing also, rather than writing your to-do list, sometimes I think it's also very good to keep your list of what you did in particular day, because even if that is, you know, answering 20 emails and that will not have your outcome in in your thesis, this is something that you did. From whatever reason, there are administrative requirements that you may also have teaching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's kind of good to look at the piece of paper and say, "Yeah, I actually did fair a bit today." So those will be the two main sort of points that I would make. I don't know if you apply any of those Willem, or maybe. Oh, no, I have think it's. Uh, I love
0: getting. <clears throat> I love getting this advice because actually, I, I always, I still struggle with this as well. Um, it's also like, yeah, I think just to add to what you said, and then maybe I'll add one thing um is what i find helpful is to write whilst i read and to never just read Mm. because also when you're trying to get through those pages i think tracking it sometimes may feel uh, i think it's one accepting that research is we don't have lab coats we don't have um uh, laboratories where we enter and we do the experiments and that so writing is experimenting for us as legal scholars Which means that, and that's why I fully agree with you when you say like, just, just write. And then, you know, you might not use it, but at least you've written, Yeah, you're experimenting, you've got your, you're in your laboratory lab coat and you're working on that. And then later we'll talk about conclusions and hypotheses and testing them and stuff. Um, Because... Uh, and I also think that your list—that's—I love making lists. It make me, makes me feel good. <laughs> um, as someone told me once, I'm a red person when you when it comes to like labeling. That's, it, it just makes me feel happy at the end of the day. Um, but sometimes they can also feel uh, when you haven't achieved those lists, it can, it can it can be counterproductive, right? So that's why I like your check of like actually thinking about okay, well, what did I do otherwise? And I think it also links up with an underlying feeling that's not so much about tracking it, but it's why you want to track it. And that's something that I'd like to add is why are you tracking? It's also because you want to feel like you're making progress, like you're mm. adding value, like you're th- like that at birthday parties, you don't have to say like, yeah, I'm still working on my PhD. Like, you know, it's happening Ten years but, later. And then they say, yeah, exactly. And then they say, oh, okay. So what did you do? And you're like, oh yeah, well, I I've I read a book and, got two references down last week right and, mm. and and that's normal because it's part of it but this feeling of not being satisfied i think or of perhaps stressing about progress i think what what helps me is also to realize that one our activities as academics are much broader than just simple pages right even though they're important but it's broader than that so value those aspects of your that you uh, were part of a conference you presented a paper you put a tweet online you uh, engaged with an, an academic you had a discussion at lunch or during coffee or you helped someone all those things matter that is also progress for you as a researcher and maybe not so much as your or of your um your research and to and finally is to also celebrate what seem seems like little milestones and i've mentioned this before i think in a previous one but i think Tracking progress is also useful if you celebrate the fact that you got that those two pages or your your 500 words down. Um, but if it's if the root cause of wanting to track it is to feel satisfied with what you're doing at work, I think celebrations are also in order, and it doesn't need to be massive and big, but just proper acknowledgement.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's also connected with two more points. One is in one of our episodes we talked about networking, building communities, mentoring, all these different things, and they all these topics are interrelated right because i think also for you to really figure out whether you're progressing i think first um it's also your relationship with your mentor or with your supervisor and that is then connected also with you tracking whether you kind of um achieve something and those pages and those things are helpful because then you can go with something concrete to those supervisors you can get concrete feedback and that's how you how you really progress i think that the 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 sort of Confusing part or misleading part is that you're supposed to get a very equal sort of path of progression that you should feel. It's always like one step forward, two step back, three step forward, five oh. steps back. It's it's called constant thing, and it's and it's interacting with others, and 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 I think also building community around you of other PhD students and sharing experiences that can be very helpful because. You struggle with similar things. Sometimes it also can be quite intimidating because some people progress what seems to be quite faster. But it also might be just a different sort of setups. You might be teaching in particular semester or someone is more experienced because they had, you know, five years of practical experience. We are in different places, but I think it's develop your skills to do something, immerse yourself in topic. And just as long as you have something to get get you going, just just share and rely on your community around you.
0: Great. That's awesome advice. Um, Talking about uh, community um, and all of that makes me um, think about the fact that, you know, there's families waiting for us. There's other colleagues waiting. I think we should wrap it up for today's um, episode. Um, just to briefly wrap up, dessert, write, 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 and and just discuss, have it out there. Think about why y- you want to track progress and what you're actually tracking, I suppose. Think about lists, but also at the beginning of the day, but also at the end of the day, and much more, uh, much more of that. Um, thanks so much, uh, Marta. Um, we'll leave it at that. This was deck the Public Procurement Podcast.
1: This was BSTEC, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bastecpodcast.com.